0: CHAPTER THIRTEEN, PART ONE, OF THE RAINBOW, BY D. H. LAWRENCE, THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. THE MAN'S WORLD Ursula came back to Cossethay to fight with her mother. Her school days were over. She had passed the matriculation examination. Now she came home to face that empty period between school and possible marriage. At first she thought it would be just like holidays all the time, she would just feel free. Her soul was in chaos, blinded, suffering, maimed. She had no will left to think about herself. For a time she must just lapse. But very shortly she found herself up against her mother. Her mother had at this time the power to irritate and madden the girl continuously. There were already seven children, yet Mrs. Brangwen was again with child, the ninth she had borne. One had died of diphtheria in infancy. Even this fact of her mother's pregnancy enraged the eldest girl. Mrs. Brangwen was so complacent, so utterly fulfilled in her breeding. She would not have the existence at all of anything but the immediate, physical, common things. Ursula, inflamed in soul, was suffering all the anguish of youths reaching for some unknown ordeal that it can't grasp, can't even distinguish or conceive— maddened she was fighting all the darkness she was up against and part of this darkness was her mother to limit as her mother did everything to the ring of physical considerations and complacently to reject the reality of anything else was horrible not a thing did mrs brangwen care about but the children the house and a little local gossip and she would not be touched she would let nothing else live near her she went about big with child slovenly easy having a certain lax dignity taking her own time pleasing herself always always doing things for the children and feeling that she thereby fulfilled the whole of womanhood this long trance of complacent childbearing had kept her young and undeveloped she was scarcely a day older than when gudrun was born all these years nothing had happened save the coming of the children Nothing had mattered but the bodies of her babies. As her children came into consciousness, as they began to suffer their own fulfilment, she cast them off, but she remained dominant in the house. Brangwen continued in a kind of rich drowse of physical heat in connection with his wife. They were neither of them quite personal, quite defined as individuals, so much were they pervaded by the physical heat of breeding and rearing their young. How Ursula resented it! how she fought against the close, physical, limited life of herded domesticity. Calm, placid, unshakable as ever, Mrs. Brangwen went about in her dominance of physical maternity. There were battles. Ursula would fight for things that mattered to her. She would have the children less rude and tyrannical. She would have a place in the house. But her mother pulled her down, pulled her down, with all the cunning instinct of a breeding animal mrs brangwen ridiculed and held cheap ursula's passions her ideas her pronunciations ursula would try to insist in her own home on the right of women to take equal place with men in the field of action and work ay said the mother there's a good crop of stockings lying ripe for mending let that be a field of action ursula disliked mending stockings and this retort maddened her she hated her mother bitterly. After a few weeks of enforced domestic life, she had had enough of her home. The commonness, the triviality, the immediate meaningless of it all drove her to frenzy. She talked and stormed ideas. She corrected and nagged at the children. She turned her back in silent contempt on her breeding mother, who treated her with supercilious indifference, as if she were a pretentious child not to be taken seriously. Brangwen was sometimes dragged into the trouble. He loved Ursula, therefore he always had a sense of shame, almost of betrayal when he turned on her. So he turned fiercely and scathingly, and with a wholesale brutality that made Ursula go white, mute, and numb. Her feelings seemed to be coming deadened in her, her temper hard and cold. Brangwen himself was in one of his states of flux. After all these years he began to see a loophole of freedom. For twenty years he had gone on at this office as a draughtsman, doing work in which he had no interest, because it seemed his allotted work. The growing up of his daughters, their developing rejection of old forms, set him also free. He was a man of ceaseless activity. Blindly, like a mole, he pushed his way out of the earth that covered him, working always away from the physical element in which his life was captured. Slowly, blindly, gropingly, With what initiative was left to him, he made his way towards individual expression and individual form. At last, after twenty years, he came back to his wood-carving, almost to the point where he had left off his Adam and Eve panel when he was courting. But now he had knowledge and skill without vision. He saw the puerility of his young conceptions. He saw the unreal world in which they had been conceived. He now had a new strength in his sense of reality he felt as if he were real, as if he handled real things. He had worked for many years at Cossethay, building the organ for the church, restoring the woodwork, gradually coming to a knowledge of beauty in the plain labours. Now he wanted again to carve things that were utterances of himself. But he could not quite hitch on. Always he was too busy, too uncertain, confused. Wavering, he began to study modelling. To his surprise, he found he could do it. Modelling in clay, in plaster, he produced beautiful reproductions, really beautiful. Then he set to to make a head of Ursula, in high relief, in the Donatello manner. In his first passion, he got a beautiful suggestion of his desire. But the pitch of concentration would not come. With a little ash in his mouth, he gave up. He continued to copy, or to make designs by selecting motifs from classic stuff he loved the della Robbia and donatello as he had loved fra angelico when he was a young man his work had some of the freshness the naive alertness of the early italians but it was only reproduction having reached his limit in modelling he turned to painting but he tried water-colour painting after the manner of any other amateur he got his results but was not much interested after one or two drawings of his beloved church which had the same alertness as his modelling he seemed to be incongruous with the modern, atmospheric way of painting, so that his church tower stood up, really stood and asserted its standing, but was ashamed of its own lack of meaning. He turned away again. He took up jewellery, read Benvenuto Cellini, pored over reproductions of ornament, and began to make pendants in silver and pearl and matrix. The first things he did in his start of discovery were really beautiful those later were more imitative. But, starting with his wife, he made a pendant each for all his womenfolk. Then he made rings and bracelets. Then he took up beaten and chiselled metalwork. When Ursula left school he was making a silver bowl of lovely shape. How he delighted in it, almost lusted after it. All this time his only connection with the real outer world was through his winter evening classes, which brought him into contact with state education. About all the rest he was oblivious, and entirely indifferent, even about the war. The nation did not exist to him. He was in a private retreat of his own, that had neither nationality nor any great adherent. Ursula watched the newspapers, vaguely, concerning the war in South Africa. They made her miserable, and she tried to have as little to do with them as possible. But Skrebensky was out there. He sent her an occasional postcard but it was as if she were a blank wall in his direction, without windows or outgoing. She adhered to the Skrebensky of her memory. Her love for Winifred Inga wrenched her life, as it seemed, from the roots and native soil where Skrebensky had belonged to it, and she was aridly transplanted. He was really only a memory. She revived his memory with strange passion after the departure of Winifred. He was to her almost the symbol of her real life. It was as if through him, in him, she might return to her own self, which she was before she had loved Winifred, before this deadness had come upon her, this pitiless transplanting. But even her memories were the work of her imagination. She dreamed of him and her as they had been together. She could not dream of him progressively, of what he was doing now, of what relation he would have to her now. Only sometimes she wept to think how cruelly she had suffered when he left her, ah how she had suffered she remembered what she had written in her diary if i were the moon i know where i would fall down ah it was a dull agony to her to remember what she had been then for it was remembering a dead self all that was dead after winifred she knew the corpse of her young loving self she knew its grave and the young living self she mourned for had scarcely existed it was the creature of her imagination deep within her a cold despair remained unchanging and unchanged no one would ever love her now she would love no one the body of love was killed in her after winifred there was something of the corpse in her she would live she would go on but she would have no lovers no lover would want her any more she herself would want no lover the vividest little flame of desire was extinct in her for ever the tiny, vivid germ that contained the bud of her real self, her real love, was killed. She would go on growing as a plant, she would do her best to produce her minor flowers, but her leading flower was dead before it was born. All her growth was the conveying of a corpse of hope. The miserable weeks went on, in the pokey house crammed with children. What was her life? A sordid, formless, disintegrated nothing ursula brangwen a person without worth or importance living in the mean village of Cossethay, within the sordid scope of ilkeston ursula brangwen at seventeen worthless and unvalued neither wanted nor needed by anybody and conscious herself of her own dead value it would not bear thinking of but still her dogged pride held its own she might be defiled she might be a corpse that should never be loved she might be a core rotten stalk living upon the food that others provided yet she would give in to nobody gradually she became conscious that she could not go on living at home as she was doing without place or meaning or worth the very children that went to school held her uselessness in contempt she must do something her father said she had plenty to do to help her mother from her parents she would never get more than a hit in the face she was not a practical person She thought of wild things, of running away and becoming a domestic servant, of asking some man to take her. She wrote to the mistress of the high school for advice. I cannot see very clearly what you should do, Ursula, came the reply, unless you are willing to become an elementary school teacher. You have matriculated, and that qualifies you to take a post as uncertificated teacher in any school at a salary of about fifty pounds a year. I cannot tell you how deeply I sympathize with you in your desire to do something. You will learn that mankind is a great body of which you are one useful member. You will take your own place at the great task which humanity is trying to fulfill. That will give you a satisfaction and a self-respect which nothing else could give. Ursula's heart sank. It was a cold, dreary satisfaction to think of. Yet her cold will acquiesced. This was what she wanted you have an emotional nature the letter went on a quick natural response if only you could learn patience and self-discipline i do not see why you should not make a good teacher the least you could do is try you need only serve a year or perhaps two years as uncertificated teacher then you would go on to one of the training colleges where i hope you would take your degree i most strongly urge and advise you to keep up your studies always with the intention of taking a degree That will give you a qualification and a position in the world, and will give you more scope to choose your own way. I shall be proud to see one of my girls win her own economical independence, which means so much more than it seems. I shall be glad indeed to know that one more of my girls has provided for herself the means of freedom to choose for herself. It all sounded grim and desperate. Ursula rather hated it but her mother's contempt and her father's harshness had made her roar at the quick. She knew the ignominy of being a hanger-on. She felt the festering thorn of her mother's animal estimation. At length she had to speak. Hard and shut down and silent within herself, she slipped out one evening to the workshed. She heard the tap-tap-tap of the hammer upon the metal. Her father lifted his head as the door opened. His face was ruddy and bright with instinct, as when he was a youth— His black moustache was cut close over his wide mouth. His black hair was fine and close as ever. But there was about him an abstraction, a sort of instrumental detachment from human things. He was a worker. He watched his daughter's hard, expressionless face. A hot anger came over his breast and belly. "'What now?' he said. "'Can't I?' she answered, looking aside, not looking at him. "'Can't I go out to work?' "'Go out to work? What for?' His voice was so strong, and ready, and vibrant, it irritated her. I want some other life than this. A flash of strong rage arrested all his blood for a moment. Some other life, he repeated. Why, what other life do you want? She hesitated. Something else besides housework and hanging about, and I want to earn something. Her curious, brutal hardness of speech, and the fierce invincibility of her youth, which ignored him, made him also harden with anger. "'And how do you think you're going to earn anything?' he asked. "'I can become a teacher. I'm qualified by my matric.' He wished her matric, in hell. "'And how much are you qualified to earn by your matric?' he asked, jeering. Fifty pounds a year,' she said. He was silent, his power taken out of his hand. He had always hugged a secret pride in the fact that his daughters need not go out to work. With his wife's money and his own they had four hundred a year. They could draw on the capital, if need be, later on. He was not afraid for his old age. His daughters might be ladies. Fifty pounds a year was a pound a week, which was enough for her to live on independently. And what sort of teacher do you think you'd make? You haven't the patience of a jack with your own brothers and sisters, let alone with a class of children. And I thought you didn't like dirty, board school brats. They're not all dirty. You'll find they're not all clean. There was silence in the workshop. The lamplight fell on the burned silver bowl that lay between them, on mallet and furnace and chisel. Brangwen stood with a queer, cat-like light on his face, almost like a smile, but it was no smile. "'Can I try?' she said. "'You can do what the deuce you like, and go where you like.' Her face was fixed and expressionless and indifferent. It always sent him to a pitch of frenzy to see it like that. He kept perfectly still cold, without any betrayal of feeling, she turned and left the shed. He worked on, with all his nerves jangled. Then he had to put down his tools and go into the house. In a bitter tone of anger and contempt, he told his wife. Ursula was present. There was a brief altercation, closed by Mrs. Brangwen's saying, in a tone of biting superiority and indifference, "'Let her find out what it's like. She'll soon have had enough.' The matter was left there, but Ursula considered herself free to act. For some days she made no move. She was reluctant to take the cruel step of finding work, for she shrank with extreme sensitiveness and shyness from new contact, new situations. Then at length a sort of doggedness drove her. Her soul was full of bitterness. She went to the free library in Ilkeston, copied out addresses from the schoolmistress, and wrote for application forms— After two days she rose early to meet the postman. As she expected, there were three long envelopes. Her heart beat painfully as she went up with them to her bedroom. Her fingers trembled. She could hardly force herself to look at the long official forms she had to fill in. The whole thing was so cruel, so impersonal. Yet it must be done. Name, surname first. In a trembling hand she wrote, Brangwen Ursula. Age and date of birth. After a long time considering, she filled in that line. Qualifications, with date of examination. With a little pride, she wrote, London matriculation examination. Previous experience, and where obtained. Her heart sank, as she wrote, none. Still there was much to answer. It took her two hours to fill in the three forms. Then she had to copy her testimonials from her headmistress, and from the clergyman. At last, however, it was finished. She had sealed the three long envelopes. In the afternoon she went down to Ilkeston to post them. She said nothing of it all to her parents. As she stamped her long letters and put them into the box at the main post-office, she felt as if already she was out of the reach of her father and mother, as if she had connected herself with the outer, greater world of activity, the man-made world. As she returned home, she dreamed again in her own fashion on her old gorgeous dreams. One of her applications was to Gillingham in Kent, one to Kingston on Thames, and the other to Swanwick in Derbyshire. Gillingham was such a lovely name, and Kent was the garden of England, so that in Gillingham an old, old village by the hopfields, where the sun shone softly, she came out of school in the afternoon into the shadow of the plain trees by the gate, and turned down the sleepy road towards the cottage, where cornflowers poked their blue heads through the old wooden fence, and flocks stood built up of blossom beside the path. A delicate, silver-haired lady rose with delicate ivory hands uplifted as Ursula entered the room and said, "'Oh, my dear, what do you think?' "'What is it, Mrs. Wetherall?' Frederick had come home. Nay, his manly step was heard on the stair. She saw his strong boots, his blue trousers.' his uniformed figure, and then his face, clean and keen as an eagle's, and his eyes lit up with the glamour of strange seas, ah, strange seas that had woven through his soul as he descended into the kitchen. This dream, with its amplifications, lasted her a mile of walking. Then she went to Kingston-on-Thames. Kingston-on-Thames was an old historic place just south of London, There lived the well-born, dignified souls who belonged to the metropolis, but who loved peace. There she met a wonderful family of girls living in a large old Queen Anne house, whose lawn sloped to the river, and in an atmosphere of stately peace she found herself among her soul's intimates. They loved her as sisters, they shared with her all noble thoughts. She was happy again. In her musings she spread her poor, clipped wings, and flew into the pure Empyrean. Day followed day. She did not speak to her parents. Then came the return of her testimonials from Gillingham. She was not wanted, neither at Swanwick. The bitterness of rejection followed the sweets of hope. Her bright feathers were in the dust again. Then suddenly, after a fortnight, came an intimation from Kingston-on-Thames. She was to appear at the education office of that town on the following Thursday for an interview with the committee. Her heart stood still. She knew she would make the committee accept her. Now she was afraid, now that her removal was imminent. Her heart quivered with fear and reluctance, but underneath her purpose was fixed. She passed shadowily through the day, unwilling to tell her news to her mother, waiting for her father. Suspense and fear were strong upon her. She dreaded going to Kingston. Her easy dreams disappeared from the grasp of reality. And yet, as the afternoon wore away, the sweetness of the dream returned again. Kingston on Thames. There was such sound of dignity to her. The shadow of history and the glamour of stately progress enveloped her. The palaces would be old and darkened, the place of kings obscured. Yet it was the place of kings for her. Richard and Henry and Wolsey and Queen Elizabeth she divined great lawns with noble trees and terraces whose steps the water washed softly where the swans sometimes came to earth still she must see the stately gorgeous barge of the queen float down the crimson carpet put upon the landing stairs the gentlemen in their purple velvet cloaks bareheaded standing in the sunshine grouped on either side waiting sweet thames run softly till i end my song Evening came. Her father returned home, sanguine and alert, and detached as ever. He was less real than her fancies. She waited whilst he ate his tea. He took big mouthfuls, big bites, and ate unconsciously with the same abandon an animal gives to its food. Immediately after tea he went over to the church. It was choir practice, and he wanted to try the tunes on his organ. The latch of the big door clicked loudly as she came after him but the organ rolled more loudly still. He was unaware. He was practising the anthem. She saw his small, jet-black head and alert face between the candle flames. His slim body sagged on the music-stool. His face was so luminous and fixed, the movement of his limbs seemed strange apart from him. The sound of the organ seemed to belong to the very stone of the pillars, like sap running in them. Then there was a close of music and silence. "'Father!' she said. He looked round as if at an apparition. Ursula stood shadowily within the candlelight. "'What now?' he said, not coming to earth. It was difficult to speak to him. "'I've got a situation,' she said, forcing herself to speak. "'You've got what?' he answered, unwilling to come out of his mood of organ playing. He closed the music before him. "'I've got a situation to go to.' Then he turned to her, still abstracted, unwilling Oh, where's that? he said. At Kingston on Thames. I must go on Thursday for an interview with the committee. You must go on Thursday? Yes, and she handed him the letter. He read it by the light of the candles. Ursula Brangwen, Yew-Tree Cottage, Cossethay, Derbyshire. Dear Madam, you are requested to call at the above offices on Thursday next, the 10th, at 11.30 a.m., for an interview with the committee referring to your application for the post of assistant mistress at the wellingborough green schools it was very difficult for brangwen to take in this remote and official information glowing as he was within the quiet of his church and his anthem music well you needn't bother me with it now need you he said impatiently giving her back the letter i've got to go on thursday she said he sat motionless then he reached more music and there was a rushing sound of air, then a long, emphatic trumpet-note of the organ as he laid his hands on the keys. Ursula turned and went away. He tried to give himself again to the organ, but he could not. He could not get back. All the time a sort of string was tugging, tugging him elsewhere, miserably, so that when he came into the house after choir practice his face was dark and his heart black. He said nothing, however, until all the younger children were in bed. Ursula, however, knew what was brewing. At length he asked, "'Where's that letter?' She gave it to him. He sat looking at it. "'You are requested to call at the above offices on Thursday next.' It was a cold, official notice to Ursula herself, and had nothing to do with him. So she existed now as a separate social individual. It was for her to answer this note, without regard to him. He had even no right to interfere.' His heart was hard and angry. "'You had to do it behind our backs, had you?' he said, with a sneer, and her heart leapt with hot pain. She knew she was free. She had broken away from him. He was beaten. "'You said, let her try,' she retorted, almost apologising to him. He did not hear. He sat looking at the letter. Education Office, Kingston-on-Thames, and then the typewritten. "'Miss Ursula Brangwen, Yew-Tree Cottage, Cossethay. "'It was all so complete and so final. "'He could not but feel the new position Ursula held as recipient of that letter. "'It was an iron in his soul. "'Well,' he said at length, "'you're not going.' "'Ursula started and could find no words to clamour her revolt. "'If you think you're going dancing off to thither side of London, you're mistaken.' "'Why not?' she cried, at once hard fixed in her will to go. "'That's why not,' he said, and there was silence till Mrs. Brangwen came downstairs. "'Look here, Anna,' he said, handing her the letter. She put back her head, seeing a typewritten letter, anticipating trouble from the outside world. There was the curious, sliding motion of her eyes, as if she shut off her sentient, maternal self, and a kind of hard trance, meaningless, took its place. Thus, meaningless, she glanced over the letter, "'careful not to take it in. "'She apprehended the contents "'with her callous, superficial mind. "'Her feeling self was shut down. "'What post is it?' she asked. "'She wants to go and be a teacher "'in Kingston-on-Thames, "'at fifty pounds a year.' "'Oh, indeed!' "'The mother spoke as if it were "'a hostile fact concerning some stranger. "'She would have let her go, "'out of callousness. "'Mrs. Brangwen would begin to grow up again "'only with her youngest child. "'Her eldest girl was in the way now, "'She's not going all that distance,' said the father. "'I have to go where they want me,' cried Ursula, "'and it's a good place to go to.' "'What do you know about the place?' said her father, harshly. "'And it doesn't matter whether they want you or not, "'if your father says you're not to go,' said the mother calmly. "'How Ursula hated her! "'You said I was to try,' the girl cried. "'Now I've got a place, and I'm going to go.' "'You're not going all that distance,' said her father. Why don't you get a place at Ilkeston, where you can live at home?' asked Gudrun, who hated conflicts, who could not understand Ursula's uneasy way, yet who must stand by her sister. "'There aren't any places in Ilkeston,' cried Ursula, "'and I'd rather go right away. If you'd asked about it, a place could have been got for you in Ilkeston. But you had to play Miss High and Mighty and go your own way,' said her father. "'I have no doubt you'd rather go right away,' said her mother, very caustic, and I've no doubt you'd find other people didn't put up with you for very long either. You've too much opinion of yourself for your good. Between the girl and her mother was a feeling of pure hatred. There came a stubborn silence. Ursula knew she must break it. Well, they've written to me, and I shall have to go,' she said. "'Where will you get the money from?' asked her father. "'Uncle Tom will give it me,' she said. Again there was silence. This time she was triumphant. Then at length her father lifted his head. His face was abstracted. He seemed to be abstracting himself, to make a pure statement. "'Well, you're not going all that distance away,' he said. "'I'll ask Mr. Burt about a place here. I'm not going to have you by yourself at the other side of London.' "'But I've got to go to Kingston,' said Ursula. "'They've sent for me.' "'They'll do without you,' he said. There was a trembling silence when she was on the point of tears. "'Well,' she said, low and tense, "'you can put me off this.' but I'm going to have a place. I'm not going to stop at home. "'Nobody wants you to stop at home!' he suddenly shouted, going livid with rage. She said no more. Her nature had gone hard, and smiling in its own arrogance, in its own antagonistic indifference, to the rest of them. This was the state in which he wanted to kill her. She went singing into the parlour. C'est la mère Michel qui a perdu son chat qui crie par la fenêtre a que lui rendre. during the next days ursula went about bright and hard singing to herself making love to the children but her soul hard and cold with regard to her parents nothing more was said the hardness and brightness lasted for four days then it began to break up so at evening she said to her father have you spoken about a place for me i spoke to mr burt what did he say there's a committee meeting to-morrow. He'll tell me on Friday. So she waited till Friday. Kingston-on-Thames had been an exciting dream. Here she could feel the hard, raw reality. So she knew that this would come to pass, because nothing was ever fulfilled, she found, except in the hard, limited reality. She did not want to be a teacher in Ilkeston, because she knew Ilkeston and hated it. But she wanted to be free, so she must take her freedom where she could. On Friday her father said there was a place vacant at Brinsley Street School. This could most probably be secured for her, at once, without the trouble of application. Her heart halted. Brinsley Street was a school in a poor quarter, and she had had a taste of the common children of Ilkeston. They had shouted after her, and thrown stones. Still, as a teacher, she would be in authority. And it was all unknown. She was excited. The very forest of dry, sterile brick had some fascination for her. It was so hard and ugly, so relentlessly ugly, it would purge her of some of her floating sentimentality. She dreamed how she would make the little ugly children love her. She would be so personal. Teachers were always so hard and impersonal. There was no vivid relationship. She would make everything personal and vivid. She would give herself. She would give 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 all her great stores of wealth to her children she would make them so happy and they would prefer her to any teacher on the face of the earth at christmas she would choose such fascinating christmas cards for them and she would give them such a happy party in one of the classrooms the headmaster mr harby was a short thick-set rather common man she thought but she would hold before him the light of grace and refinement He would have her in such high esteem before long. She would be the gleaming sun of the school. The children would blossom like little weeds. The teachers, like tall, hard plants, would burst into rare flower. The Monday morning came. It was the end of September, and a drizzle of fine rain like veils round her, making her seem intimate, a world to herself. She walked forward to the new land. The old was blotted out. The veil would be rent that hid the new world. She was gripped hard with suspense as she went down the hill in the rain, carrying her dinner-bag. Through the thin rain she saw the town, a black, extensive mount. She must enter in upon it. She felt at once a feeling of repugnance and of excited fulfilment. But she shrank. She waited at the terminus for the tram. Here it was beginning. Before her was the station to Nottingham, whence Theresa had gone to school half an hour before. Behind her was the little church school she had attended when she was a child, when her grandmother was alive. Her grandmother had been dead two years now. There was a strange woman at the marsh, with her uncle Fred, and a small baby. Behind her was Cossethay, and blackberries were ripe on the hedges. As she waited at the tram terminus, she reverted swiftly to her childhood, her teasing grandfather, with his fair beard and blue eyes, and his big, monumental body. He had got drowned. Her grandmother, whom Ursula would sometimes say she had loved more than anyone else in the world, the little church school, the Phillips boys, one was a soldier in the lifeguards now, one was a collier. With a passion she clung to the past. But as she dreamed of it, she heard the tram-car grinding round a bend, rumbling dully, She saw it draw into sight, and hum nearer. It sidled round the loop at the terminus, and came to a standstill, looming above her. Some shadowy grey people stepped from the far end. The conductor was walking in the puddles, swinging round the pole. She mounted into the wet, comfortless tram, whose floor was dark with wet, whose windows were all steamed, and she sat in suspense. It had begun her new existence. One other passenger mounted, a sort of charwoman with a drab, wet coat. Ursula could not bear the waiting of the tram. The bell clanged, there was a lurch forward. The car moved cautiously down the wet street. She was being carried forward, into her new existence. Her heart burned with pain and suspense, as if something were cutting her living tissue. Often, oh, often, the tram seemed to stop and wet cloaked people mounted and sat mute and grey in stiff rows opposite her, their umbrellas between their knees. The windows of the tram grew more steamy, opaque. She was shut in with these unliving, spectral people. Even yet it did not occur to her that she was one of them. The conductor came down issuing tickets. Each little ring of his clipper sent a pang of dread through her, but her ticket surely was different from the rest. They were all going to work. She also was going to work. Her ticket was the same. She sat trying to fit in with them, but fear was at her bowels. She felt an unknown, terrible grip upon her. At Bath Street she must dismount and change trams. She looked uphill. It seemed to lead to freedom. She remembered the many Saturday afternoons she had walked up to the shops. How free and careless she had been. Ah, her tram was sliding gingerly downhill. She dreaded every yard of her conveyance. The car halted. She mounted hastily. She kept turning her head as the car ran on, because she was uncertain of the street. At last, her heart aflame of suspense, trembling, she rose. The conductor rang the bell brusquely. She was walking down a small, mean, wet street, empty of people. The school squatted low within its railed, asphalt yard, that shone black with rain. The building was grimy and horrible. Dry plants were shadowily looking through the windows. She entered the arch doorway of the porch. The whole place seemed to have a threatening expression, imitating the church's architecture for the purpose of domineering, like a gesture of vulgar authority. She saw that one pair of feet had paddled across the flagstone floor of the porch— The place was silent, deserted, like an empty prison waiting the return of tramping feet. Ursula went forward to the teacher's room that burrowed in a gloomy hole. She knocked timidly. "'Come in,' called a surprised man's voice, as from a prison cell. She entered the dark little room that never got any sun. The gas was lighted, naked, and raw. At the table a thin man in shirt-sleeves was rubbing a paper on a jelly-tray. He looked up at Ursula with his narrow, sharp face, said, "'Good morning,' then turned away again, and stripped the paper off the tray, glancing at the violet-coloured writing transferred, before he dropped the curled sheet aside among a heap. Ursula watched him, fascinated. In the gaslight and gloom and the narrowness of the room, all seemed unreal. "'Isn't it a nasty morning?' she said. "'Yes,' he said. "'It's not much of weather.' but in here it seemed that neither morning nor weather really existed this place was timeless he spoke in an occupied voice like an echo ursula did not know what to say she took off her waterproof am i early she asked the man looked first at the little clock then at her his eyes seemed to be sharpened to needle points of vision twenty five past he said you're the second to come i'm first this morning Ursula sat down gingerly on the edge of a chair and watched his thin red hands rubbing away on the white surface of the paper, then pausing, pulling up a corner of the sheet, peering and rubbing away again. There was a great heap of curled white and scribbled sheets on the table. "'Must you do so many?' asked Ursula. Again the man glanced up sharply. He was about thirty or thirty-three years old, thin, greenish, with a long nose and a sharp face. His eyes were blue, and sharp as points of steel. Rather beautiful, the girl thought. Sixty-three, he answered. "'So many,' she said, gently. Then she remembered. "'But they're not all for your class, are they?' she added. "'Why aren't they?' he replied, a fierceness in his voice. Ursula was rather frightened by this mechanical ignoring of her, and his directness of statement. It was something new to her. She had never been treated like this before, "'as if she did not count, as if she were addressing a machine. "'It is too many,' she said sympathetically. "'You'll get about the same,' he said. "'That was all she received. "'She sat rather blank, not knowing how to feel. "'Still she liked him. "'He seemed so cross. "'There was a queer, sharp, keen-edge feeling about him "'that attracted her and frightened her at the same time. "'It was so cold and against his nature.' The door opened, and a short, neutral-tinted young woman of about twenty-eight appeared. "'Oh, Ursula!' the newcomer exclaimed. "'You are here early. My word, I'll warrant you don't keep it up. That's Mrs. Williamson's peg. This is yours. Standard Five teacher always has this. Aren't you going to take your hat off?' Miss Violet Harby removed Ursula's waterproof from the peg on which it was hung, to one a little farther down the row. She had already snatched the pins from her own stuff-hat, and jammed them through her coat she turned to ursula as she pushed up her frizzed flat dun-coloured hair isn't it a beastly morning she exclaimed beastly and if there's one thing i hate above another it's a wet monday morning pack of kids trailing in anyhow nohow and no hold em she had taken a black pinafore from a newspaper package and was tying it round her waist you've brought an apron haven't you she said jerkily glancing at ursula oh You'll want one. You've no idea what a sight you'll look before half past four, what with chalk and ink and kids' dirty feet. Well, I can send a boy down to mamma's for one. Oh, it doesn't matter," said Ursula. "Oh yes, I can send easily," cried Miss Harby. Ursula's heart sank. Everybody seemed so cocksure and so bossy. How is she going to get on with such jolty, jerky, bossy people? And Miss Harby had not spoken a word to the man at the table. She simply ignored him. Ursula felt the callous, crude rudeness between the two teachers. The two girls went out into the passage. A few children were already clattering in the porch. "'Jim Richards,' called Miss Harby, hard and authoritative. A boy came sheepishly forward. "'Shall you go down to our house for me, eh?' said Miss Harby, in a commanding, condescending, coaxing voice. She did not wait for an answer. Go down and ask Mamma to send me one of my school pinners for Miss Brangwen, shall you? The boy muttered a sheepish yes, Miss, and was moving away. Hey! Called Miss Harby, come here. Now, what are you going for? What shall you say to Mamma? A school pinner, muttered the boy. Please, Missus Harby. Miss Harby says, will you send her another school pinner for, for Miss Brangwen because she's come without one? Yes, Miss, muttered the boy head ducked, and was moving off. Miss Harby caught him back, holding him by the shoulder. "'What are you going to say?' "'Please, Mrs. Harby, Miss Harby wants a penny for Miss Brangwen,' muttered the boy, very sheepishly. "'Miss Brangwen!' laughed Miss Harby, pushing him away. "'Here, you'd better have my umbrella. Wait a minute.' The unwilling boy was rigged up with Miss Harby's umbrella, and set off. "'Don't take long over it,' called Miss Harby after him. Then she turned to Ursula and said, brightly, "'Oh, he's a caution, that lad. But not bad, you know.' No, Ursula agreed, weakly. The latch of the door clicked, and they entered the big room. Ursula glanced down the place. Its rigid, long silence was official and chilling. Halfway down was a glass partition, the doors of which were open. A clock ticked, re-echoing, and Miss Harby's voice sounded double as she said, this is the big room standard five six and seven here's your place five she stood in the near end of the great room there was a small high teacher's desk facing a squadron of long benches two high windows in the wall opposite it was fascinating and horrible to ursula the curious unliving light in the room changed her character she thought it was the rainy morning then she looked up again because of the horrid feeling of being shut in a rigid, inflexible air, away from all feeling of the ordinary day, and she noticed that the windows were of ribbed, suffused glass. The prison was round her now. She looked at the walls, colour-washed, pale green and chocolate, at the large windows with frowsy geraniums against the pale glass, at the long rows of desks, arranged in a squadron, and dread filled her. This was a new world, a new life with which she was threatened. But still excited, she climbed into her chair at her teacher's desk. It was high, and her feet could not reach the ground, but must rest on the step. Lifted up there, off the ground, she was in office. How queer, how queer it all was! How different it was from the mist of rain blowing over Cossethay. As she thought of her own village, a spasm of yearning crossed her. It seemed so far off. So lost to her. End of Chapter Thirteen, Part One. Read by Tony Foster.